0: Callaway Golf can't stop pushing the limits, which is how they've managed to be the number one irons in golf for five consecutive years. That's why they used AI to create the new Maverick Irons. AI has engineered a flash face cup in every Maverick Iron for better distances in your entire set. Each club's center of gravity is positioned to optimize launch and help players find new distances. Get new distance at callawaygolf.ca. Callaway, the number one irons in golf.
1: Summer has officially arrived, the birds are chirping and the flowers are in bloom. Across the country, the economy is reopening slowly, and it's already clear that we're living in a different world. This year, many Canadians' favorite summer rituals are in jeopardy, whether that means going to a concert, sitting in a bar, getting on a plane, or even just getting a haircut. Welcome to the new normal. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. I'm a business reporter at The Financial Post, and I'll be filling in as host while Emily Jackson is on maternity leave. For the next few weeks, Down to Business plans to talk to different guests about how to reopen Canada, as the social distancing measures that were enacted earlier this year to prevent the spread of coronavirus are gradually relaxed. This week, we're joined by Avery Shenfeld, Chief Economist and Managing Director at CIBC Capital Markets, who recently authored a report that looked at the reopening of the economy titled... Economies start your engines, but watch for yellow flags. Avery Schemfeld, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Just a few weeks ago, a V-shaped recovery, meaning a quick rebound from the economic consequences of the coronavirus pandemic, sounded impossible. But with a better-than-expected employment report and positive signs in the housing and oil markets, the picture looks a bit different. What's your thinking on the shape and speed of our economic recovery?
0: The reality is is that the speed of the recovery is going to depend very much on what sector you're talking about. So what we're seeing now is, in fact, a V-shaped recovery for the segments of the economy that can operate reasonably well with some social distancing regulations still in place, the very sectors that are, in fact, allowed to open up uh, in the next few months across the U.S. and Canada. The problem is that there's a second big chunk of the economy that's gonna see a very, very shallow recovery, or in some cases, no recovery at all. So in the latter group, for example, you have concert halls, uh, large convention centers, bars that depend on live music. Um, Those are gonna linger, essentially shut down uh, for at least the next several quarters until we have a vaccine or a treatment in place. And there's another group of sectors that will have an initial rebound, things like restaurants, for example, because they're going from zero to something. But to get the rest of their sales back is going to be much more difficult as long as those social distancing measures are in place. So at the macro level, I believe what you'll see is an initial bump up that it will be encouraging and we'll get our hopes up. Uh, But subsequent quarters are still going to be a bit slower and leave more of what was shut down or hammered by coronavirus still very much waiting for their green light that's going to be a long time coming. So maybe
1: it's a little premature to talk about a V-shaped recovery already happening, and in fact, may not be the way the economy reacts.
0: We'll see a checkmark, but then after that, a much slower climb for the rest of it.
1: You mentioned a lot of different aspects of the economy, consumer and retail, concert halls. There has been a, a bit of a rebound in housing, but I'm wondering if you have any reasons to be suspicious as this being one of the areas of the economy where the supply and demand dynamics could shift a little bit, like could look strong at first and then sort of crater or or
0: fade. What are your thoughts? What we've seen is that activity in May certainly was up impressively. From where we were in April, but remember, in April, the market was virtually frozen. No one was going to look for a house, no one was putting their house up for sale. So you can have a spectacular month-to-month gain, but still, May was down massively from prior May level. And so I think what we had is two months of sales jammed into one, and that one wasn't very impressive. And the problem for the housing sector in Canada is some of its fuel came from immigration, it came from non-permanent residents, people coming here, for example, to go to school or take a temporary job that needed rental accommodation. And without that fuel, and we don't expect it to come back for a while, we're going to see at some point a slowdown in home building, a slowdown in housing sales, and probably a bit of a retreat in prices as well.
1: And this is something that may be familiar to a lot of listeners who remember back in 2008, when the United States really had the huge housing crash. I seem to recall at that time that the housing market, how it performed really varied based on where you were, where you had major cities that seemed to do better than outlying housing markets, where there might have been more foreclosures. I'm wondering if given that this time our housing is being hurt by, as you say, sort of coronavirus and the lack of immigration, sort of decreasing some of that demand for housing. But also, I wonder if denser areas might find themselves in more trouble this time around.
0: That's a theory that you hear out there that people have been more affected in cities than rural areas. Actually, the data don't really show that. If you, if you look on a per capita basis across the world, There have been some big cities, for example, that were much more exempted than smaller places. So Rome, for example, in Italy was not hard hit. It was Bergamo, Italy, for example. Or even in China, um, the most densely packed cities, Beijing, Shanghai, were not the center of the outbreak. And here in North America, again, a mixed picture. So sure, New York City and Montreal, for example, were hotspots for their respective countries But again, on a per capita basis, there have been other smaller, less dense centers. So I don't really see a flight out of cities being uh, a flight to safety. We are seeing people looking for cottages while the pandemic is underway because they can't take a different sort of vacation. But ultimately, I see cities as still having an attraction for uh, young people, uh, still going to be a more entertaining place to live longer term, even if right now. Um, it's pretty dull living in a big city. There's really nothing to do.
1: That's a good point. I think a lot of us are experiencing that who are cooped up in our homes in cities. So that's one aspect of the economy, housing. Another pillar, I would say, of our economy is oil. That's another market that seems to be looking up a little bit. Do you think we're seeing a enduring oil recovery that, that will last?
0: Unfortunately for the energy sector, if you put the recovery into a bit of perspective, if going back a few years, you would have told oil producers that oil would have rebounded to $40 a barrel for WTI prices, I don't think they'd be all impressed with that level. This is still a depressed level for energy prices. And part of the story of the rebound is, in fact, that at the prices that we had a month or two ago, we were shutting down production in places, not only in Canada, or at least reducing it, but in Canada, in Texas. So part of the rebound in oil is coming from demand picking up. And that's a good part of the story is that around the world, more people are driving again, for example. But part of it has also come from production being curtailed at low prices. So I don't think you'd get too many smiles on the faces of an energy company if you told them that great news, oil prices are up because you're producing less. So this is still, I think, a long road to the kind of levels that not necessarily cover the costs of production, because we might be there for many producers, but give enough incentive to, for example, start capital spending to grow those oil production numbers over the next few years. We're a long way off of those levels still. And I suspect it's going to take a couple of years to get world demand back at a level where you might start to think of capital spending returning to the sector.
1: The picture that's emerging for Canada is that you have immigration basically shut off, oil and housing sort of making these recoveries, but it's not clear how long or how serious or how solid these recoveries are. I guess I'm wondering, as social distancing rules relax and the economy reopens, do you think that we may see other parts of the economy take over as the engines for growth for the next few years? And, and which of those areas are you thinking about, if so?
0: The first leg of growth is going to be easy because it is just coming off of consumers who were held back from spending on things that they would have wanted, but didn't consume because those things or services were shut down. And what governments have done during this period of economic hibernation is they have been sending checks to a lot of households who didn't have jobs or self-employment income and others have been working at home and continuing to earn their income, but not having any place to spend it. So initially, we can get a resurgence in spending uh, because we'll have seen some money saved up, actually, uh, from people not buying airline tickets, not buying concert tickets, and so on. That gives them money to spend at local stores. So that's the first leg of the rebound. The rest of it will be the gradual reopening of parts of the economy that aren't yet open. And eventually, of course, we'll see a much broader return of spending by both businesses and households once we have a vaccine or a cure, or, hope, or I guess eventually the disease just runs its course. But that's going to be a much slower process. So for now, we're really going to rely on that initial burst in consumer spending as more venues for that spending open up. And we're hoping that governments time that opening up just right so that we don't trigger large second waves of the disease and force us back in our house caves again.
1: Something you said that is so interesting, I think, is that savings for the first time are going up. I can't remember the last time that I heard this in Canada. All I've heard for as long as I can remember is that, you know, there's a lot of household debt here. Whether you're, you know, went to college and have student loans or you bought a house or bought a car, there does seem like there are these changes taking place.
0: So the savings numbers will go up in the very near term because the people who are working haven't been spending. I don't necessarily see that as permanent, but it is true that in the last cycle, we had a very unbalanced economy in Canada. So we patted ourselves on the back that we reached full employment, but we did a lot of that off of I build you a condo, you build me a condo, um, I borrow and buy things, you do the same. We didn't really have a balanced economy. And what we were missing was we weren't doing all that well in attracting business investment spending, which gives you longer term growth. And we weren't doing all that well on the trade side. So one thing we are looking for in the next cycle is we're still going to be starting from a fairly elevated level of household debt and beyond the initial burst of spending from people who come out of their houses and have things to buy. I think we're going to need to see a more balanced economy that does better on trade and exports. And some of that's going to have to come from living, I believe, with a somewhat cheaper Canadian dollar than we had uh, in the last cycle. Because we need to start attracting businesses who find Canada as a competitive place uh, to open things up for export purposes. So we're hoping for that. I think that behavioral changes, when you're in the middle of a crisis and the world has turned upside down, it's always tempting to believe that we'll never go back to life as we previously knew it. And while I do think there'll be a bit more working from home than we used to have, a bit more shopping online, I suspect that many of our previous patterns, for example, increasing use of uh, vacation time to travel around the world, uh, the popularity of travel, the popularity of experiences relative to goods, my view is all of that will come back. So it's, it's just that we're going to live life very unusually for the next couple of years.
1: Well, that's definitely something that I think a lot of people are wondering. Uh, something I've been sort of thinking about, you know, a lot of the economic impact seems like it is related to social distancing. But one thing that's curious about this recovery is that people around the world are breaking social distancing policies to protest. And I'm curious about how this may change the usual narrative. Um, And I I guess I'm interested in whether you have any sense about how widespread social unrest generally is correlated with the economy and whether there's any effect on consumer spending that occurs during these periods which you know, seem to occur, not all the time, but maybe once every 30 years or so, you see like widespread social unrest.
0: So one concern that, of course, people have is, is this going to spread coronavirus among the people who are in those crowds? Unfortunately, the protests were largely outside and many people were wearing masks, but not all. So there could be some disease follow-up. There is a larger, of course, social issue here. These protests were sparked by anti-Black racism, which is certainly a huge issue in the U.S., but in other countries as well. And, and to some extent, also then extending to other forms of racism and racial-based inequality. And what may, in fact, be interesting this time is how many people not from racialized communities join those protests. And that perhaps is a hopeful sign that actually that governments, businesses, local governments, Police forces are going to take this issue a bit more seriously. One of the concerns that people have had about the last expansion, and this is particularly true in the U.S., but it globally as well, is how much inequality was bred in that expansion. And longer term, that's not a great environment for a sustained uh, and healthy economy. We need an a active consumer sector. Uh, we need a reasonable distribution of income. After all, you need, in a sense, you need the buy-in of people that the economy, the way it's structured is, is working for them. And the fact that these protests have resonated a bit more than previous protests did is saying that they are hitting their mark. And we can be hopeful that we have actions actually by the government, by the business sector and so on to address some of those, uh, social economic issues which could longer term create a more stable and healthy economy, a better foundation for further economic growth.
1: And just another thought on that is, you know, even before the pandemic, there were protests across Canada. I remember just a little bit earlier this year, there was a a blockade on rail lines, which stopped a lot of traffic. On this issue of inequality slightly, the Canadian government, it, it seems like in terms of their federal stimulus, it gets more aimed at people, whereas in the US, it seems like economic stimulus has been more focused on companies. And um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the difference between these two, and if you think this is a topic that is going to come up for discussion more.
0: It's fair to say that both governments have done a bit of helping afflicted households as well as business. So both governments had lending programs to help tie business through this period, and the Canadian government had several different programs to that effect. Uh, both governments have also increased payments for uh, the unemployed. The U.S. did a few things that Canada didn't do. They sent a check to every single household, whether they had lost a job or not. To me, that wasn't particularly well-targeted assistance. Canada chose to, I think, aim a little more of an arrow at those who have suffered rather than everybody getting a check. Um, And the other factor that that is a bit different is Canada rolled out some of those benefits a bit faster. Both governments are now thinking about what the next steps are. Congress, in fact, now is looking at uh, some bills in the U.S. that would extend some of the support for households, for unemployed people. That's going to be very important to prevent a wave of bankruptcies uh, at the household level. Canada has also extended some of the benefits that it gave uh, to the self-employed as well as uh, unemployed people and has to think about longer term how we're going to both extend the benefits for those in need but also wean them away from people whose jobs are now returning. So a very delicate balancing act. Both governments have done a lot of stimulus. But both governments still have some issues to face in terms of how they fine-tune that stimulus to allow for the economy to come back, but at the same time, not pull the rug out of the economy by dropping all of it too quickly.
1: It certainly seems like it's going to be a delicate balancing act. And so maybe just one other question about what lies ahead. You know, some people call it a second wave. Some people say it's just going to be one long, continuous wave. Whatever happens, it does seem like we're not out of the woods yet. How worried are you about that?
0: The risk of a second wave is already the biggest constraint on our forecast. So if we assume that governments don't overextend the reopening of activities to those that would spark a large second wave, you're holding back economic growth in the sectors that can't join in this expansion. Even with that, history suggests that we are likely to see second waves in various regions or countries and our our hope is that we put in the monitoring the testing so that these are more little fires that flare up and can be tamped down before we end up at the level we were at and have to close everything down again we are seeing that in some countries overseas and so far most of them have managed to put out those brush fires before they create new uh, substantial peaks in the disease. And we could be hopeful that that's the case in the U.S. and Canada as well. But I think the U.S., they're still very much in their first wave in many states. And they're not really showing much rationality at this point in which states are liberalizing activity and which states are keeping the restraints in place, states that seem to have very elevated caseloads seem to be opening up just as fast as those where the peak has passed. And that's a recipe for, at least at the regional level, having a problem to deal with.
1: Yeah. Well, Avery, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me for this podcast.
0: Okay, my pleasure.
1: That was Avery Shenfeld, the Chief Economist and a Managing Director at CIBC Capital Markets. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business. And as always, thank you to our team, Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, in for Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.